This uh, section, as most of you are aware, but let me just recap a bit. They have, as we've come to chapter 3 and 4, gone to the temple. This is post-Pentecost. They've gone to the temple, and there was a man at the, at the entrance who had been lame since birth for 40 years. And in the power of the name of Jesus of Nazareth, they did not have silver or gold, but they gave to him what they had, and that was a healing in the name of Jesus. And this man stood and walked. He immediately stood without rehab, without learning, without lessons, having never walked a day in his life, never stood a day in his life, uh, never jumped. The ordinary sense of balance and development that we all have, this healing was so entire that immediately he stands and he leaps for joy. And this, this brought a lot of the people, as he followed them around into the temple, gathered together and they took that occasion to declare something even more necessary and more extraordinary than the healing of the body. And that is the salvation that is through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, that brings eternal redemption, that brings healing to the soul and eternal life. Because truly, to be healed in body at 40 years old, and to have possibly 30 to 40 Plus more years of walking only to have eternity in the lake of fire. What use is that? Physical healing is of such temporary limited value. But it was granted to this man and it gave occasion that a greater healing, a greater deliverance could be declared. And that is deliverance from the power and the condemnation of sin that is only in Christ. And they declared this. And none could refute them because they're saying the very same power that has this man standing, as you see, it proves that Jesus is alive, that he's risen, that he is who he said he is. And he's also going to be coming again. But they did not like that. Those who had crucified Christ, particularly the leading regime at that time within Judaism was the Sadducees. They grabbed hold of these men and they put them in jail overnight. When they called them out the next day, God gave those men boldness once again. Not only to declare as they did in the temple, but under threat of these very men who passed judgment on Jesus and then sent him to Pilate and then shouted in Pilate's courts, crucify him and whipped up the crowds to join in. Standing before these same men, the spirit of God gave them boldness. And again, they declared Christ, Christ crucified, Christ whom you killed, Christ raised salvation in him and in no other. And they declared that once again. And these men, they're, they're wondering, what will we do? And I have an answer to that. Repent and follow Jesus is what you should do. Their, their thought is we can't really talk against these men and what they did because everyone can see this man. So it's definitive. So we're, it would be our words against their words and a demonstration of power, we lose. So here's what we'll do. Instead of turning, though, and following and believing in Jesus, they tell these men, no longer, no longer will you speak in this name. 
We'll let you go, but don't do it anymore. Remember, that's a strong warning to these men because they know that these men had crucified Christ. They know the legitimate threat that is involved. They've just themselves spent the night in prison. And so, and they remember, they responded, you judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey men or to our obey God. For we cannot but speak about what we have seen and heard. We're not storytellers. We're truth tellers. The gospel is the word of truth. That's why we're declaring it. We're not, we're not here. And Christians ought not be about our own agenda. Our, our, our own politics. Our own opinions. What it's about is truth. It's about the gospel of grace. It's about the power of God. It's about deliverance from sin. It's about the, uh, a risen Savior who rules his kingdom and rules over the hearts of his people with power and glory. Who has given us his spirit to enable and equip us with gifts to lead us and, and, and strengthen us to walk in righteousness. And, and they have now faced that threat. And it says with, with warnings, the, the details of those warnings we don't know. But when that warning is shortly violated in the book of Acts, they arrest James. And they behead James. So this is not an idle threat. It's a serious one that they, they understand the danger that is involved. And as they come and report what has happened... It tells us there at the beginning of this, we're looking at in verse 23, when they were released, they went friends, their fellow believers, and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. The first thing that they did in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this threat, in the midst of this difficulty, is lift their voices to God. But I want to, there's something beautiful also about this. They did not just run home and run into their own corner and do this. They shared these things with their brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a wisdom in the community. There is a reason why God has referred to, to the congregation as a flock. We're not, we're not to be, uh, though in the state of Texas we may think well of the notion of mavericks. But we are not to be mavericks. We're not to be lone rangers, lone wanderers. We are part of a kingdom, part of a community. We are part of a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is power in that unity. When the scripture talks ongoing about how we are to love one another, do so more and more. How we're to bear with one another. How we're to forgive one another. It also says things that we're to pray for one another, intercede for one another, to bear one another's burdens. How does that happen? If, it, if, if we just keep it silent. And sometimes our personalities is that. And maybe sometimes in, in, in the culture, society kind of says, well, we don't want to be complainers. Well, the, you don't have to complain necessarily, but to let your burdens be known, to, to let your brothers and sisters shoulder with you and even bow the knee with you. There is strength in that. And so it, it's important that we have that open communication that this is who. Some, some worry, well, I don't want people to know I'm going through a hard time. I don't want people to know I'm struggling. I don't want people to know. 
uh, I'm weak. I don't want people. You don't want people to know you're human. Because that's all of us. We all have struggles. We all have failures. We all have stumblings. We all have weaknesses. It's not any one of us. And even those of us who have stumbled and, 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 and have confessed and brought back to repentance, sharing that with someone to help hold you accountable, it's not for the purposes that they will judge you. It's that they will love you and they will hold you up and, 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 and they will come alongside of you so that when you start to drift, brother, come on back. Sister, come on back. Don't go there. But they come now together and they go in, they go together in prayer. And I'm just going to take this prayer backwards for a moment, if you don't mind. Go down with me to verse 31. Okay, the, the prayer has ended in, in verse 31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. That's what I call it. And it's our first point. Um, a, a spirit empowering prayer has. It has a remarkable response. Now what I want you to note this. What happened? Now this may have never happened in your prayer meetings. And in your personal experience. Right? The place where they were. It was shaken. It has that sense of an earthquake or a trembling. There was a visible experiential shaking and they were all filled with spirit. Now what's interesting is this. We're going to look at the prayer. You want to know what you will not find in that prayer? God, shake this building. May this place where we're gathered be shaken. That's not in the prayer. That happens today, doesn't it? That, that happened as a response. But that was not the request. They were all filled with the Spirit. You want to know what you're going to find interesting? In the prayer, they do not request to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, I think of many prayer meetings that take place today and they will get God. We want that here, this place that we're gathered together praying. We want this place to be shaken. We want that we would be filled with the spirit. Those kind of things happen and not that those are bad things, but that's not the prayer that takes place in this passage when that was the response of God. So it's interesting. There's a lot of a, a tendency today to instead of focusing on the quality content of a spirit-empowering prayer, they want to jump the prayer and experience the same responses. We want the shaken building, and we want the filling of the spirit. But they bypass all of the meat and the meaning that was actually in the prayer. Why? And so to me, it's something that we need to take notice of. Because why are we not praying for what God has called us to, to know, to say, and to do? Why are we just praying for these other external things? Why are we bypassing the 
meaningful things. And this is not unique here, this response. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, remember Paul and Silas were arrested. And as they were praying and singing hymns to God, the prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken and all the doors were open. God did, the, did those things on a number of occasions. But again, at that point, they're praying and singing. They don't even seem to be pleading for deliverance from the prison or praying for open doors. Because actually, when those doors are opened, they're not going to leave. And neither are any of the other prisoners. They tell, tell the jailer, we're all still here. We haven't gone anywhere. Don't kill yourself. So, so they weren't pleading for escape and God shook it and opened the doors. But I think today, we think of somebody getting imprisoned. We think of somebody in, in, in th under threats and warnings. And what is the focus of our prayers? Protect. Deliver. What we're going to find in this prayer is not a plea with God to protect and deliver. But it is to give us perseverance. Even when persecuted. To help us not Shrink back in fear, even in the face of attack. Grant that we persevere with faithfulness. I think something's gone amiss because in, in, in the modern practice in our churches and sometimes even in our own thoughts, it is thing is bad. God, make it good. You know, and it's kind of, it's, you know, I don't like fix it. Whereas that doesn't seem to focus at all of the apostles. These men so motivated by the spirit. Their, their focus is not on how do I feel about what, what's going on around me. How do I like it? No. There is what has God called me to be about? God help me no matter what to be about that. <laughs> help me to be faithful. Help me to do what you have put us here to do. Oh, so, so incredible when we see this. Um, let's go on. And I want us to begin to look at the elements of the prayer. A spirit-empowering prayer, the first thing we see about it in verse 24 is this, that it, it rightly reveres. It rightly reveres. By that I mean it approaches God for who he is. Again, I love the start of this. It, it comes to God for who he is. It praises him for, for his being and his person and his power. It doesn't really just come to God for what I can get. We come to God because he's God. We come to him because he is the sovereign over the universe. He is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We come to him who has all wisdom, who has the perfect plan on how he will accomplish what he has purposed in your life and mine. We don't just come for what we can get. We come for who he is. And it begins by saying this. They lift their voices together. The idea of together speaks of, of, of a unison. You know. It, it, it's 
very hard to understand exactly what's going on in this, in this passage because it says they're all saying this together and I can't fathom a situation where suddenly they're all praying the same, ver same words at the same time uh, unless maybe one is leading out and the others are, are repeating responsively or one is the voice and everyone else's hearts are absolutely committed to that. We need that more in prayer. When one prays in public, like we end the service here in a prayer, it's generally not to be uh, me praying the petitions for the saints and uh, everyone simply listening. As one voice prays, others participate by saying, yes, amen. Lord, do this. Lord, hear this. Lord, act upon this. God, you are great. God, we need you. That we are engaged and not just an audience very important and and what they what they do here the first thing that they say depending on your translation here in the esv i i love the way the english standard version has rendered it here it is a single word but rendered by two words it says this sovereign lord now some uh, other translations go with different ways some of them just simplify it to lord um, some will say, uh, Lord God, but the word there, it, it's, it's a Greek word from which we get the modern word despot. Do you know what a despot is? If you were to look it up in your dictionary, a despot is, is generally to us today a negative thing when it's a man. Because basically someone who is himself the absolute ruling unaccountable dictator he does what he wants where he wants when he wants and so for humans that carries a sense of the man's a tyrant but for God it doesn't carry that sense of a tyrant it, it, it is it is not the common word kurios it is a much stronger word. I mean, the, the simple definition of this word is it, it's also in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, the, the shared words that, the, that this references are, are those words for someone who is an absolute owner and master. This is a, the, uh, kind of one of the biggest words. It speaks of someone who has... Uh, the, the lexicon definition says a title for God as one who has supreme power. Lord, master, sovereign. It is a king or ruler with absolute unlimited power. Which that said, I don't know if that word can rightly be applied to anyone but God. <laughs> because do any of them have absolute power? Do they have power over their own life and death? Do they have power over their own illnesses? No. Do they have power over the thoughts of their enemies or spouse? No, they can't control. But God can turn the hearts, turn the minds. God can do all of those things. So God alone is the absolute sovereign master. And we come to him with that sense. The scripture will tell us at times and speak of it even in the Old Testament in terms like this. He is the potter, we are the clay.
Now, that's the absoluteness of that is kind of like this. How many of you envision potters generally coming into the clay and saying, I was thinking about making a vase. You okay with this? You know, um, I wanted it to be big. Are you okay with me making you big? Will you agree to let me make you big, Clay? Is that how potters and, and clay work? No! Potters and clay work very differently. The potter says, this is what I'm doing. And he does it. And the clay is absolutely molded according to the desire of the potter. And we may not like this, but one of the ways that it's described to us in the Old Testament is if the potter is working it, and as he's making a pot, it's not how he ultimately wants it. You know what the potter can do? Crush it up. Start again. Well, that ain't fair. I'm thinking of crushing you up and starting again because I don't like the way this is working. You okay with that? Is that going to happen? No! And, and so this is the strength of this word, and we've got to get that in our minds. We, we sometimes think of God as, as big and as benevolent, but somehow we, we tend to think of him as one who kind of needs to get our permission, needs to get our acceptance. He does not need our permission. He does not need our acceptance. There was a, a book written many years ago, um, Strengths and Weaknesses in it, but the title, so profound and clear, it simply said this, your God is too small. And I tell you, no matter how much I study the scriptures and how, how, how much my view of God's supremacy, God's power, God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's authority, God's dominion, is as, as big as I get, I think I grasp it far better now than I once. I think I can still look at myself in the mirror and say, Jason, your God is too small. You still have no idea. Because this little thing up here, this little pea brain, it can't comprehend the infinite and eternal God. It can't completely fathom the, the breadth and depths. Such thoughts, the psalmist says, are too wonderful for me. They're too much. And this is how he come, the, the prayer comes with that sense of absolute power and sovereignty. God. It rightly reveres as it approaches God. I mean, I love the way it says this in Psalm, uh, uh, in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 19.15 says this. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said this. O Lord, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heavens and the earth. I uh, love the way Timothy says these words in 1 Timothy 6, 15, or Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. Uh, speaking of God, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Wow. Those phrases get so big. We can simplify it for a second. Psalm 135 verse 6 says this. Whatever the Lord pleases, 
he does. In heaven, on the earth, and in all the deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, does. Now, sometimes when they, they think that that's the case, you know, my parents, they always get what they want, but they're always telling me what to do. They never let me. Parents don't get what they want. Any parent will tell you that. I don't get what I want because among the things I want is you not to complain. Uh, Nobody gets what they want all the time. Nobody can simply do what they want all the time. We don't have the power to carry it out, but God does. He has absolute power. And this is the one that we come to in prayer. One who has absolute power. And we talk about that sometimes when we're doing our closing prayer at the end. We come, we come with needs for jobs. We, comes with, we come with, with needs for finances. We come for, with needs for health. We, we come with needs for uh, clear minds to, to do well in, in studies and exams. Uh, uh, family matters, social matters. It, I mean, it doesn't matter what the field or what the realm. You know, whereas that's not the case. If you have a problem with your heart, you go to the doctor, but generally, not just any random doctor. You want one who's specialized. Most people with heart problems don't go to a chiropractor, right? You, you, you want to you go to someone who specializes in that. If, you, if you've got broken bones, you don't want to go to a heart doctor. You, you want to go to the right person who can do the right thing and get it done. Right? The amazing thing is, whatever the issue, whatever the area, whatever the, the field, whatever even the impossible things to the minds of men... These things are possible with God. I mean, even things such as let this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea. <laughs> let, the, let the sun stand still in its place. Ah, let it go backwards. What? <laughs> Did that happen? Could God do that? And we look, read the Old Testament and what do we see? In a battle... As they pled, God held the sun still. With Hezekiah as a sign that God was going to give him 15 more years, he caused the sun to go backwards. 15 steps. I mean, who can do that? The scripture reminds us he can raise the dead. He can, in the, in the words of that great hymn by Martin Luther, if he wanted with a single word, he could end the enemy. With a single word, done. And he's gone. Because remember, all that came into being, how did it come into being? Let there be light. Let there be water. Let there be land in the midst of the water. Let there be trees. Let there be, just by the power of his word. You know, it, it, it's such a small Thing for God. All the things that sometimes seem big, big, they're just, we think, oh, this is such a big request. Not a big request. Tiny little request. Just the brushing of a finger can get it done. We, we've talked about in the past, and my mind, mind goes to it when we consider um, these issues. Um, 
We do remembering just many years ago when we were in India and here we're in a position now where we're getting ready to 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 build some more uh, classrooms on the campus uh, there in India where there's a, a we have a tutoring center. We're going to start a school for the village kids, pastors training seminary. But years in we were pleading with God to provide us with the funds necessary to build this. We had found the property, we had found all of those things, and supposedly a donor had arrived, but the money wasn't arriving, and the contract was getting ready to fall through. We're thinking, what's going on? God, why are you not giving this? Why are you not answering this prayer? And as we gathered together as a small church in a congregation there, we began to plead with God. God, you're, you know, if, if the contract falls through, I guess that's your will, because you know better than us. Why it's delayed, we don't know. We don't like it, but we don't know. And your, your way is better than our way. But maybe, God, you have a purpose in the delay. And so we began to pray. And as we're praying, God, bring it through. Help us to rest in you. Help us to trust in your purposes. Give us patience. We also began to think, but God can do far beyond everything that we can think or imagine. I can imagine some pretty incredible things. So... Since the money, uh, every month, uh, my salary would come in, and it would be more or less every month, depending on the international exchange rates. We thought, well, let's pray that the delay causes the money that comes over to actually be more, because the exchange rate's favorable. That pray that God works it out, we get a little bit more. Why not? Can God do that? Sure. And we thought, well, why pray just a little bit more? Why don't we just go ahead and pray that it becomes the highest exchange in the history of the country? Because could God do that? Yeah. And so we all believed God could. Did any of us think God would? Honestly, no. But we believed that God could. And we prayed, God, maybe make it that this delay, that when this money comes through, it's the highest exchange rate in the history. During these same days that it was delayed, Pakistan had tested a nuclear weapon. India and Pakistan were threatening on the verge of war. The United States began discussing possible sanctions against the United States and India. And all of a sudden, the exchange rate on the day our money came through peaked to the highest in the history of the nation. <laughs> By far. And you think, wait a second. Did, did God just move, cause governments to test nuclear weapons, cause the U.S. to threaten sanction? Is God wielding all of these political and monetary powers by the power of his hand? And it answers the prayer of these couple little people precisely and perfectly. Wow. Does God have any limits? And, and my tendency is, and, and I'm thankful that God's answer was a display of his power, not dependent upon my faith. My faith is that he could, but I figured as long as, as, long as the money comes, we're good. <laughs> uh, but God said, I, I'm bigger than you know. And, then I, and for a moment, I began to think, wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. And, and there's a part of me that thinks that God's saying, that was nothing. That was so small, so easy, so insignificant for me. You'd think that, uh, you know, to, to shuffle the hearts, minds, actions, and decisions of na nations, you think that's hard? 
Not for me. Nothing is too difficult for me, as he tells Jeremiah. Further, I want to go on and see, not only does it rightly revere God, but thirdly, it, it richly remembers him. Because look what it says, in, it's still in verse 24 initially, sovereign Lord who has made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them. So sovereign Lord, it rightly reveres him for who he is. It richly remembers the power that he's done in the past. The work that he's already accomplished. You, you made the heavens. You made the earth. You made the sea. You made all that is within him. Now, a part of us might think, why are you saying that in the prayer? He knows that. Well, I ask you this. What are you and I going to say in a prayer that he doesn't know? I mean, because he knows our words before they're even on our lips. <laughs> He knows our thoughts, even when we keep them secret. Indeed, his word judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. There, there, so there's no, uh, well, I don't want to tell him things he already knows. No, we're praising him for his power and accomplishments in the past. God, you have done like this. And whenever you read through the Psalms, you see how often the, the psalmists were ready to say, God, you made heaven and earth. You delivered your child out of Egypt. You brought them through the wilderness. You provided them with manna from heaven. You gave them water from the rock. You did this and you did that and you did this and you did that. And you are great and glorious. Now, what's, what I don't want us to miss in this is they've come and they've begun their prayer with fears. And unlike us, as their prayer begins, you know what it's not all about? Me. Their prayer begins, and it's all about God. And they just begin to richly remember who he is. Nehemiah 9, 6 says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven and the earth, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, is in them. You preserve them all, and the hosts of heaven worship you. To, for us to again remember and acknowledge and recount God's work, God's power, God's action, God's authority. It's a good thing. Jeremiah 10.10 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God, the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and under its heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power. Who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. So as we, we come with a right reverence and we come with a rich remembrance. Who he is in his being. What he has done the works of his hand in the past. Thirdly, within the context of prayer, it recounts revelation. What do I mean by that? It is scripturally sound and scripturally saturated. Scripturally informed. In the middle of this prayer, right there, in verse 25, it says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So what are they doing? 
They are quoting Scripture to God. Well, doesn't he already know it? Yes, it is, simp- it is again acknowledging. You have said it and you did it. You have promised and you delivered. You're, you are truth. Others are lies. You are to be followed and obeyed. To be dismissed and disregarded. You alone are God. And so when, when, when you see how this uh, goes. Now what he does here is he quotes Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2. And it, it's, it's very powerful. It says, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Now this is a beautiful sentence because the people's plotted in vain. They all gathered together and what was their plot? To put to death Jesus. Now, some might think it was not in vain because when the crucifixion day was done, he was dead. So it seemed like they were successful. I would go on so far as to say there were probably a lot of people uh, among the Sadducees and others that didn't believe in resurrection that still believed that they had been successful in getting rid of this, this teacher. Some of the political leaders believed they had accomplished. But they are wrong. Even when men think they have succeeded in their sinful plans. Even the sinful plans of men serve the sovereign purposes of God. That's a hard thing to put our mind around. We considered that a little earlier this morning too. Even the sinful plans of men serve the sovereign purposes of God. Because what does it say in this passage? Yeah, they, um, in fulfillment of this prophecy that was spoken in Psalm, it says this. Concerning, concerning Jesus, it says this. Truly in this city, verse 27, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Here's the fulfillment. The scripture said this, brought it to, to, to work in Christ. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel. And what did they do? They plotted. But their plot didn't overcome God's plan. Their plot was to bring him to an end. And in in the end, it didn't bring him to an end. It fulfilled God's purpose. They did whatever his hand and plan had predestined to take place. See, that's why the, they're more comfortable with it than we are. So, for example, when shortly James is going to be arrested and then James is going to be killed, you know what they would say to themselves? You know what happened? Exactly what God had predestined by his hand to take place. And even as James is now gone to be with the Lord, the Lord will raise up another in his place. And when another one goes, God will raise up another in his place. God will continue to work his purposes and bring it about. The destruction of one does not bring an end to God's purposes. Men plot in vain, but God's purposes prevail every moment and every occasion. That's why uh, when we look at this in Psalm 2... It says this, actually, in Psalm 2, verse 4 and 5. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. People who think, I mean, the pride of people that will somehow think, aha, look what we did. What do you mean? You're no threat at all. And you did exactly what I wanted you to do. You're celebrating your success. But your success was designed by me to serve for the salvation of a multitude of people. You didn't want it. You didn't plan it. You didn't know it. And you stand there in your pride celebrating, which ultimately is not your victory. The victory belongs to God. The victory belongs to Jesus. Oh man, what is there? So recounting that revelation, speaking of God's word, because we know all scripture is God breathed. God has disclosed it. And so we, we say things that he already knows. You've done this. These are the works of your hands and we praise you for them. We say back to him his word because we are proclaiming God and we're asking him for help. God, you've told us to renew our minds. We pray that you would work that in us. You told us to, set, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God, that is our desire, that that would be us. Help us to be a people who give ourselves more and more to that spiritual service. Pray the word of God. How often do we do that? I mean, it's a healthy endeavor to learn, to have our prayers scripturally informed scripturally sound scripturally saturated otherwise it becomes just a gimme gimme time and that's not healthy on to the next one not only does it recount revelation but it recognizes reality which is kind of what i just unfolded there it recognizes reality god's eternal decrees and purposes are what ultimately unfolds it tells us these words that should never be forgotten simple phrase you know the world chooses so many things to put on greeting cards and quilts and pillows and things like that um were to god that this would be one that was on there more often and people would give thought to it and that's romans eleven thirty six. 36 it says from him and through him and to him are all things you know what that means it's not for me. It's not about me. It's not ultimately for you or about you. It's not ultimately all for the church and about the church. The ultimate of all ultimates, it's all. He made it. He controls it and sustains it. And it's all for his pleasure and glory. It's all about him. Hmm. If that's the way all creation is how can that not be how we think in every moment of every day and see it's not hard for these men to put themselves in places where they think they may suffer they think they may be killed they think they may be stoned they think they may be put in prison because here's their thought as they go into it i'm not my own i've been bought with a price i belong to him my life's not for me it's for him my breath's not for me, it's for him. He hasn't given me the ability to speak for me, it's for him. He hasn't given me this talent, this skill, this opportunity for me. Everything that exists is for him. So I got to make it. 
about him. And when we don't think, and that's why I often say this, Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say we've all sinned and disobeyed the law of God. It says fall short of the glory of God. There are, when, whatever is not of faith is sin. There are a multitude of things that we do in life when we don't do them ultimately with a view to his glory and pleasure. Yeah, even that is sinful at its motive, out its core. It was considered somebody who was planning in James to go and conduct a business and make a profit. It was considered sinful and arrogant for their thought not to include the dependent necessity. If God wills, we will do this. That everything is dependent on him and everything is ultimately for him. Brothers and sisters, oh God, help us with that. And further, it, it, nextly, it requests resources. He does get to requests here. But again, I want to note for this. The request is not shake the room. The request is not fill us with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit, as we've seen as we looked on the day of Pentecost and as we'll, we'll continue to see as the book of Acts unfolds, even looking back at when they were, the Spirit would rush upon them in the book of Judges, such as Samson, it was the special enabling, emboldening, strengthening, equipping for service. And so they prayed for boldness to speak. Filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they boldly spoke of Christ. Filled with the Spirit, he spoke again boldly to these, uh, these uh, scribes and Pharisees. Throughout the scriptures, filled with the Spirit was to give them a boldness and an empowerment to do those things that are difficult. Overcome our doubts and fears and do what God would have us do. But instead of uh, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. To boldly speak the truth in love and speak encouragement. Instead, today the tendency is instead of the effect of that filling. To bolden us and, 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 and equip us and serve us. Now it's I just want the feeling of a filling. What? They don't pray for feeling. They don't pray for a filling. They pray for boldness to continue speaking. And God answers by filling them with the Spirit that gives them a boldness. Now that filling of the Spirit might it also be accompanied with a tremendous joy. And a tremendous peace. And a tremendous hope. Sure. It is likely that feelings accompany it. But we're not in pursuit of the feelings. We're in pursuit of the faithfulness to God, what God has called us to and the blessed feelings of serving him empowered by the spirit are a glorious byproduct that we enjoy. So it requests here, one, that we would speak your word with boldness, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak the word with, with boldness. In other words, we afraid. It, just so tempted to zip it. Don't let us do that. Help us overcome that fear. Help, help us to, to be bold to speak. And in order to, to be bold, he's going to fill them with the Spirit. 
So they're not asking for the filling there because they're asking for all of the. If we pray to God for the ministry that we should have among one another to speak as we ought to speak, to encourage as we ought to encourage, to rebuke it when we need to rebuke, uh, to speak boldly the gospel, uh, uh, to reject sin, to walk in faithfulness, to love one another. If we pray that God will work those things in us, he accomplishes those things by filling us with the spirit. Too many people are just saying, fill me with the Spirit. They don't have any plan to, to exercise that in the love of the saints, in the ministry of the gospel to the lost. They just, they, they just want the goosey bump. You know, they just want, you know, I, I, I felt something. Didn't you feel something? If, if you feel something, but it doesn't change something, what's the point? If it doesn't change fear into faithfulness, what's the point? If it doesn't change silence into speaking the truth in love, what is the point? Also, we see that so not only do they ask him uh, to give us boldness to speak your word, but they ask him to stretch out his hand. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name. They want that God might be pleased, especially in those days. So God still does great things even now. But especially in those days, it was a testimony to all those who had seen that Jesus had been dead and crucified. When someone was raised and healed in Jesus' name, it was a confirming witness. Wait, this Jesus is still alive because he's still, his power is still at work. Wow, it served as a tremendous confirming witness. And further, I would say, more importantly than just the physical healings is a complete wellness. Stretch out your hand to heal, but don't just heal the body. Heal the soul. Don't, don't just raise the, the dead to temporary earthly life, but those who are dead in their trespasses and sin, make them alive in Christ Jesus. All those things that are so much more glorious and so much deeper. And so, really, in conclusion, let me run back over these things. An example of spirit-empowering prayer looks like this in this passage. One, it rightly reveres God. It approaches Him for who He is. Master, ruler, sovereign. It richly remembers and marvels at what he's done. The works of his hand. Creation. Answered prayer. It recounts revelation. It's scripturally informed. Scripturally sound. Scripturally saturated. It recognizes reality. That God is working all things. Even the sinful purposes of plans of men. According to his sovereign purposes. It requests resources. Boldness to speak your word, your power attending to the ministry to make known your name and confirm your witness. God, that you would open their hearts to hear, that you would enable them to see, that you would grant that as they hear the gospel, they might have life in Christ. And we see that uh, with these Requested resources of speaking with boldness and stretching out his hand. There was a remarkable response. God by his spirit filled, empowered, and moved them forward to fulfill his purposes as his servants. Let's pray.